0: Thank you for joining us on the Sermon Podcast for Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church. We love being able to distribute our sermons in this format, but we would love it even more if you could join us in person at 5208 Crow Mountain Road in Russellville, Arkansas, or online at the Mars Hill Cumberland Presbyterian Church Facebook page. We have Sunday school classes at 9 a.m. with a worship service right after at 10 a.m. Let's now prepare our hearts to hear a message from God's Word. There we go. Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to read the first 13 verses. We're going to look at a, what might be a familiar text to some of us it's the parable of the ten virgins. And when you have Matthew 25, if you would stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, "'Here's the groom, come out to meet him.' Then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, "'Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out.' The wise ones answered, "'No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves.' When they had gone out to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the rest of the virgins came also and said, Master, Master, open up for us. And he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, be alert, because you don't know either the day or the hour. This ends the reading of God's Word, the Word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Almighty God and gracious Father, we come before you with this word, with this story that has been shared and that has been told over and over and over again. And here we have it preserved for us in your word as Jesus told it to his disciples. And we ask, Lord, that you would make this story to come alive in our hearts and that we would see it as as a warning and as a, as a truth that we need to heed, we ask it all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. There are three resources that generally most people have that they can't get back, and once they spend them, uh, they, they just it's hard to get them back, rarely if you do. And that's time, energy, and money. Time, energy, and money. You'll certainly never get back your time, and your energy, and you're lucky if you can get your money back on anything. Because we have a limited amount of all three of these resources, it's important that we figure out how to use them well. While a lot of folks tend to believe that the Bible is a fairy tale and that that it's just a bunch of made-up bedtime stories to help religious folks sleep at night, it's really amazing when you consider that a book that's supposed to be a fairy tale actually has a lot of wisdom to offer in regards to how you should use your time, energy, and money. So that's why we follow the gospel readings. We'll be following the gospel readings in the lectionary that cover Matthew 25 over the next three weeks. And we're going to talk about Jesus' warnings to use what we have wisely because there's going to come a day when we'll have to give an account for what we did with what we had. I had originally just planned to preach the parable of the ten virgins this morning and move on to something else next week, but as I read the chapter in its entirety, I noticed that all three of these parables had to do with stewarding what we have well and how we'll give an account for it. What's even more interesting is that it would seem to me that each of these three parables in Matthew 25, Matthew 25, 1-13, through 14-30, and 31-46, through 46, have to do with either time, energy, or money. Our text today relates to our time, and I'll talk about how that is so in a minute. Uh, the, The next parable in verses 14 through 30 talks about how we use our money or other resources, and then the parable after that in verses 31 through 46 relates to how we use our energy. And I think it's interesting that if you were to compare these three parables, you would find an incredible amount of similarities. There is someone whose arrival or return is being anticipated and awaited. Uh, There is a party who does what they're supposed to do in the meantime, and there's a party who doesn't do what they're supposed to do in the meantime. And there are some resources that need to be managed or actions that need to be taken. And when someone doesn't do what they're supposed to do, the the person who is arriving or returning issues some kind of reprimand or judgment. It's almost like Jesus is saying the same thing over and over and over again in different ways so that his audience gets the point. Now now to zoom in on the parable this morning, we need to understand how they did weddings back then. These days, we do this whole thing where uh, the groom can't see the bride until the wedding because allegedly it's bad luck. Uh, That wasn't a tradition back then. Instead, on the day of the wedding, the bride and the bridesmaids would wait at the bride's parents' home, and the groom would then come with his groomsmen to escort the bride and her bridesmaids to the site of the wedding with music and dancing. Now, because there were many preparations that had to be made, it was hard to predict the exact timing of the groom's arrival. So what we have in this story is a groom who has been held up for some unknown reason. His arrival is delayed and he, he tarried, as the old King James would say it. And as he tarried, all ten of the bridesmaids fell asleep. And as we walk through this text, we're going to look at it scene by scene, and we're going to see why it is that the wise were wise and the foolish were foolish. And what we'll see in the text today is the delay of the groom. So what we're going to talk about what happened when the groom was delayed. We're going to see the declaration concerning the groom. How did the wise and foolish virgins act when they realized the groom had arrived? And then we're going to talk about the denial to the wedding. What does uh, does this simple denial to the foolish bridesmaids do? teach us who are hearing the parable. So let's talk, first of all, about the delay of the bridegroom. Look at verses 1 through 5. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. Well, first of all, stop there. Notice notice, Notice that Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the kingdom of God, as it were. And this is important because Jesus will often tell stories and say, well, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And and it's nothing like how we anticipate it. And one of the things, if you'll notice, is whenever someone asks Jesus a question in the Gospels, he very rarely gives them a direct answer. He very rarely gives them a direct answer. Instead, he tells a parable. He tells a story. And finally, in Matthew chapter 13, if you go back and read that, I think it's in Matthew chapter 13, the disciples ask him, why are you constantly speaking in parables? And you would think that the answer to that question would be, well, I'm telling you stories so that you'll get it and so that you'll understand it. But that's not even what Jesus says. Jesus says, I'm telling you stories because some of you are going to get it and some of you are not. And so... What Jesus will sometimes say at the end of his parables or at the end of his sayings is, he'll say, Let him who has ears to hear, hear. As a matter of fact, if you go back in, if you go into the book of Revelation and you look at the seven churches in Revelation, at the end of each of those letters, while they're not parables, Jesus does say, He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So Jesus will often speak these hard words or tell these hard parables, and then he'll say, him who has ears, let him hear. And so how are we going to understand the parable? Well, here's how we're going to understand the parable. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So first five verses again. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they didn't take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Generally, when I preach parables, I try to leave the symbolism alone as much as I can and let the parable speak for itself, but when it comes to this parable, I think it's helpful for us if we understand right out of the gate that this is about the church. This is about the body of Christ. And when you talk about the theological concept of the church, you're dealing with it in two ways. You're dealing with the visible church and you're dealing with the invisible church. I'll say that again, you're talking about the visible church and the invisible church. Ray Pritchard explains the difference between the visible and the invisible church in this way. He says the visible church consists of members, regular attenders, friends, visitors, and the great mass of peripheral people who rarely attend but still consider this church as their church. As such, the visible church contains the truly converted and the unconverted. The visible church contains the converted and the unconverted. It consists of some who know the Lord, some who are seeking the Lord, some who attend but are lethargic, and others who are nothing more than religious hypocrites. The invisible church, however... The invisible church is made up of true believers in Christ who worship here week by week. The point of Christ's parable is to remind us that just because you go to church doesn't mean you're born again. I can sit in a garage all day long, but that doesn't make me a Mustang. What we're dealing with is the parable of the ten virgins, and this is a story that explains the visible church. It's a story that explains the visible church. Really, all three of these parables in Matthew 25 are dealing with the visible church. The first parable involves wise and foolish virgins. The second parable involves shrewd and lazy servants. The third parable involves sheep and goats. All ten virgins had had the same duty, to be prepared for the bridegroom's coming. All three of the servants had the same duty, to use their master's talents wisely. All, All of the sheep and goats had the same duty, to look for opportunity to minister to those whom jesus calls the least of these in those groups all of the subjects are divided into those who do what they're called to do and those who do not do what they're called to do all ten of the bridesmaids start off the same way and i imagine if you looked at all of them when they first arrived at the house of the bride's parents you might not even be able to tell just by looking at them which ones are wise and which ones are foolish if you're looking at all ten of them in a lineup, you might say, well, number nine and number ten look like intelligent folks. I'm sure they're prepared. I don't know, number four looks a little ditzy over there. I don't know about her. But if you, but if, but if you look at all the bridesmaids from the get-go, you could make all the assumptions that you wanted, but you'll never know. You'll never know which ones are prepared and faithful and which ones were not up until it's time to go. That's why in another parable about wheat and chaff, in Matthew 13, 29-30, Jesus says, don't try to pull up the chaff, because if you do, you might uproot some of the wheat. Instead, let them grow together until harvest time. And then, then Jesus says, I'll send the reapers and they'll gather the wheat and they'll gather the chaff and the chaff will be burned with fire. If you just read Matthew 21 if you just read Matthew 25 verse 1, if you just read the first verse without reading ahead, you can't tell which ones which ones are wise and which ones are foolish. It's only in the delay of the bridegroom that you find out who falls into what category. It's only through the passage of time that you find out who's faithful and who's not. That's why the Apostle John writes in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, he says, They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. It's only through the passage of time that you find out who's in and who's out. They all started out with lamps. They all started out with enough oil in their lamps to get them started. But as time goes on, you find out who used their time to prepare wisely and who wasted their time, making assumptions that it wouldn't take all that long for the bridegroom to get there. And one of the things I think we often overlook about this text is that the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 24, Is all about being prepared because the Lord could come back sooner than you think. But this parable in Matthew 25 is all about being prepared because the Lord could come back later than you think. This story isn't about a bridegroom that shows up too quickly, it's a story about a bridegroom that takes longer than is expected. Part of what it means to believe in the return of Christ is to be ready whether it's two minutes or two hundred years from now. Lots of folks will look around at how bad the world is and they'll say, well, Jesus must be coming back soon. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. You don't know. He could come back in two minutes. He could come back in two hundred years. Be ready either way. If our theology of Christ's return is predicated purely on how how bad things are, then there is a persecuted underground church in China that we owe a big apology to. The return of Christ is not predicated on whether things are good or bad, but it's simply based on when the Father turns to the Son and says, it's go time, all things are now prepared, and when that happens, you better be ready. And so Matthew 24 is all about be ready. Jesus Jesus could come back sooner than you think. Matthew 25, 1 through 13 is about be ready because He could come back later than you think. And if He comes back later than you think, then some of us are in trouble because we made it to second and third base, but we might not make it home if we're not ready. Not only do we see the delay of the bridegroom, but we also see the declaration of the bridegroom. Look at verses 6 through 9. In the middle of the night, there was a shout. Here's the groom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins got up, they trimmed their lamps, and the foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. The wise ones answered, No, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. So when the shout comes for the brides to get ready, we learn three things about the foolish bridesmaids that we should not miss. We learn learn, number one about their identity, we learn number two about their irresponsibility, and we learn number three about their entitlement. As I mentioned earlier, you couldn't tell which ones were foolish and which ones were wise until the shout went forth to announce the bridegroom's coming. All we knew from the first five verses is that some were wise and had oil and others were foolish and didn't have oil. But now, now that the shout has gone forth, we can tell who's prepared and who's not. As it gets closer to the coming of the Lord, you'll be able to tell who's wise and who's foolish. Everybody looks the same to start with, but as time goes on, you'll start to see folks drop out that you never would have thought would drop out. And you'll start to see folks come in that you never would have thought would come in. And when the declaration goes forth, the identity of the foolish bridesmaids is revealed. And all of a sudden you realize who has oil and who doesn't. Who's prepared and who isn't. Who's ready and who's not. Not only do you see their identity, but you also see their irresponsibility. They had adequate time to prepare. They had adequate resources available to them. And we know that because other bridesmaids had oil for their lamps. They used their time and their resources wisely. All ten virgins had the same tools available to them to do what they needed to do to fulfill their duty, and only five took advantage of their resources. I had a conversation this week, and I made the observation that there are a lot of churches, mostly mostly bigger churches, that have great marketing. They have a seemingly bottomless bank account. They have a huge building, multiple outreach ministries, warm bodies willing to do whatever needs to be done, and what little they're doing with all of it just seems so vapid and shallow. There's a church in Missouri, for example, that spends millions of dollars on a men's conference every year, and instead of bringing in solid Bible preachers, to empower, men and to, be go- to, be, to empower men to be godly husbands and fathers, they'll bring in comedians, monster trucks, and MMA fighters into the church for a weekend, and they'll call it a men's conference when it's really just a godless circus for dumb jocks. And they still charge you $150 just to get in the door. And listen, smaller churches don't get off the hook either. There's a lot of smaller churches that have stockpiled money for years because they never use it. They treat their church house like an exclusive club and they never never give, they never support causes for the community, they never support missionaries. I was a part of a church one time where anytime someone suggested that the church do some kind of outreach for the community, we had an elder who would ask, well, how much is it going to cost? And it didn't matter if it costed $1 or $1,000. That same elder would always say, nah, I'd rather have a money burning. And you know what happened? That church eventually closed down. The leadership of that church had the resources available to them to do what they were called to do, and they just sat on it. I was listening to a message this week from Nathaniel Hobbs, and he told this story about a little country church that had about 20 people in it, and their finances were getting slim. And they were living offering to offering. They could barely keep the lights on. They couldn't pay the preacher. And the church had a business meeting. And they said, well, we support about three missionaries. Let's just, cut off our, let's just cut off our offering to all three of those missionaries. That way we can keep the lights on. they got other supporters. I'm sure they'll understand. Now, from a carnal point of view, that makes sense. But when you're dealing with God's money, you can't think with a carnal point of view. And there was one little old lady in that church who understood that, and she stood up in that business meeting and she said, I've been a member of this church for over 50 years, and if you think you're going to drop this church's offering to those missionaries by a single penny, I'll walk out that back door and you'll never see me again. They said, well, what choice have we got? She said, well, let's take on another missionary. And they took a leap of faith, and the following Sunday they voted to support a Baptist preacher who was going to Mexico to start churches. And pretty soon, out of nowhere, money started flowing in, folks started showing up and wanting to get saved and baptized, and that church exploded because one little old lady said, I'm not going to let you think with your flesh when it comes to dealing with God's resources. I don't care if you've got a whole bunch of resources or just a little bit. If you use what you have in faith, God will do the rest. Not not only does the declaration of the bridegroom reveal the foolish virgin's identity and irresponsibility, it also reveals their entitlement. Look at verse 8 again. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. Now I want you to notice something. They believed they were owed something that they should have already had, but they didn't take it for themselves. Now I want you to think about this. They needed those lamps, not only so that they could see where they were going, but they were necessary for the actual ceremony itself. They needed them so that they could process into the wedding. And it was bad enough already that five of the bridesmaids didn't have enough oil. But the ceremony would have been a complete disaster if those wise virgins had shared their oil and they all ran out before the ceremony even started. These foolish bridesmaids didn't think of the consequences of possibly ruining the whole ceremony. They just wanted what they felt they were owed in that moment. Listen, no one owes you anything. No one owes you anything. Everything you have has been graciously gifted to you by God. You didn't earn it. You don't deserve it. But God saw fit to give it to you anyway. It's the same with all of us. These foolish virgins thought they could just wait around, and when the time came, they could just mooch off of someone else. But what what the wise virgins had wasn't transferable. It's something that had to be gotten for themselves. Now, as good as, now, this is as good as time as any to remind you that faith is not transferable from one person to the next. I don't care how godly your mama was. I don't care how good of a church member your daddy was. I don't care if you can trace your lineage back to the first generation of Cumberland Presbyterians. The only that's going to matter when the bridegroom comes is if you're born again and you're ready to meet him you are not owed a place in the kingdom based on your works, your lineage, or your church membership, but it's only by the blood of Jesus and so there's the delay of the bridegroom and the declaration concerning the bridegroom, now let's see the denial to the wedding, look at verses 9 through 12 the wise ones answered There won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. And when they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived and those who were ready went with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. The door's been shut. It's too late. It's over. Later, the rest of the virgins came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. And he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. I want you to notice something, and this is going to be one of those comparing Scripture with Scripture moments where once you see it, you can't unsee it. I want you to take note of how their rejection looks very similar to what Jesus described in the Sermon on the Mount. If you go back just a few chapters in the Gospel of Matthew, this is Matthew 25, if you go all the way back to Matthew chapter 7 and you read verses 21 through 23, here's what you'll see. Matthew seven twenty one through 23, this is what Jesus says. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you, you who practice lawlessness, or you who are workers of iniquity. So what Jesus is describing, the story that Jesus is telling in Matthew 25, illustrates what he said earlier in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Not only that, but there's another place in Luke's gospel where something very similar is said. If you look at the gospel of Luke in chapter 13, if you look at Luke chapter 13 verses 23 through 28, here's what Jesus says again. Luke 13 verses 23 through 28, he says, Then one said to him, Lord, are there few who are saved? And he said to them, now notice notice what I said earlier. Whenever someone asks a question to Jesus, he doesn't give them a straight answer. He either tells them a story or he gives them an explanation. He doesn't just say yes or no. I bet a lot of people would love it if they just if they could just ask God a question and he would give them a yes or no. It would make things less complicated, wouldn't it? But that's not how God does things. And we have to be satisfied with that. We have to be satisfied with the way God does things because God does things in a far superior manner than we do things. So one said to him in Luke 13, 23-28, Lord, are there few who are saved? He could have just said yes or no, but he didn't. Instead, this is what he said. Strive to enter through the narrow gate. For many, I say to you, will seek many I say to you will seek to enter and will not be able when once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying lord lord open up for us and he will answer and say to you i do not know you where I do not know you or where you are from then you'll begin to say we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets but he'll say to you i tell you i do not know you or where you're from, depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out. So what happens is someone comes to him and asks him a question says, Lord, well, how's, how's how is this going to be? Are there going to be many people saved? Or are there going to be a, only a few saved? How is it going to be? And instead of answering the question, Jesus turns it around on the individual. Because the, because the issue is, most of the time when we want to know the answer to a question, it's not really about us, it's about other people. Well, Lord, you know, what are you going to do about so-and-so over there? What are you going to do about this group of people? What are you going to do about that stuff going on in Israel? What are you going to do about this or that? And Jesus turns the, round, turns the question around the individual. And we see that in Acts chapter 1. When Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, Peter looks up and says, Well, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus doesn't give a yes or no answer. He just says, It's not for you to know the times or the seasons by which the Father is fixed by his own authority. Now, I want you to notice that in at least three places in the gospel, where we just read in Matthew 25, Matthew chapter 7, and Luke chapter 13, you have a person or persons standing before a closed door on the last day saying, Lord, Lord. And Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to get in. Lord, Lord, let me in. Look what I've done. Look what I used to do. In Matthew 7, you've got people who, even though they've preached, cast out demons, and performed miracles, they still didn't do the will of God. In Luke 13, you've got people who ate and drank in Jesus' presence, and heard him teach and preach, and they still didn't do what they heard him teach and preach about. In Matthew 25, you've got foolish virgins who had time and resources to spare who still didn't prepare themselves for the coming of the bridegroom. And I want you to notice that these are not reprobates. These are not... People who are just out there living it up. These aren't your average Joe sinners who have never heard the gospel. These are people who have preached, who have served in the church, who have cast out devils, who have performed signs, wonders, and miracles, all in the name of Jesus. You can do anything and everything and still not do the one thing Jesus requires everyone to do. Repent, believe, follow me. What is it that Jesus requires us to do? Luke 14, 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There's a lot of folks who will gladly come to church and hear someone preach about the cross as long as they don't have to pick it up themselves. But what Jesus is saying is if you're going to be my disciple, then you're going to have to come come to the end of yourself and follow me. Then in, then in Matthew 28, Jesus tells the disciples to go make disciples. Well, he just said in, in Luke 14 that unless you pick up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Then in Matthew 28, he tells his disciples to go make more disciples. Well, what does that mean? It means he wants them to make a people who actually want to come to the end of themselves. Take up their cross and follow Jesus. He didn't tell them to make converts. He didn't tell them to make church members. He didn't tell them to make pew warmers because that's how you get folks who say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and that in your name? He told them to go make disciples. And then when we come to the end of the parable, Jesus gives the application in verse 13. In Matthew twenty-five, thirteen. he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour which the Son of Man is coming. Notice that over the course of Matthew chapters 24 and 25, Jesus repeats that thought at least on four separate occasions. Maybe not word for word, but it's the same idea that Jesus repeats over and over and over again. He wants to make sure people understand this. I'm gonna say something controversial about this passage, and I don't think the issue, I, I don't think the issue is that the folks who were rejected are relying on their works in general. I think the issue is that they are relying on their past works. And here's what I mean by that. If you go back and read the passages that I just cited in Matthew 7 and in Luke 13, the folks who say, Lord, Lord, are referring to their works in the past tense. Did not we do X, Y, and Z. And what I see in those texts, especially in Luke 13, is folks saying, yeah, I remember hearing you preach in our streets. I remember doing this, that, or the other. And at some point along the way, they stopped. Their love grew cold, and in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, Jesus tells the church at Ephesus, Hey, I see your good works, and I know that you're laboring in my name, but the problem is that you left your first love. So what does Revelation tell them to do? What does Jesus tell them to do in Revelation chapter 2, verse 5? What does Jesus telling them to do in Revelation chapter 2 verse 5? He says, repent and do the first works or I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand. In my mind, as I read these texts, a lot of people are standing before Jesus on judgment day, resting on things they did 20, 30, 40 years ago, but now they're cold and they didn't actually think they would have to give an account, but here they are. So my question to you this morning is not, what did you do 20, 30, 40 years ago? My question is, what are you doing for Jesus now? And I don't care if you prayed the sinner's prayer at one point. I don't care if you joined the church. I don't care how many or how few degrees you have. All I want to know is if you're following Jesus now. That's the ultimate question every single person has to answer. Where are you at with God now? Because there's going to come a day when Jesus will return and we'll all have to stand before the judgment seat and we will all have to give an account for how we responded to the gospel. We'll all have to give an account for how we responded to the commands of Jesus. We'll all have to give an account for what we did with the resources and the blessings that He has given us. That's a reality that we all need to be aware of this morning. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, this is your word and we are your people. And we're so very thankful that we have the privilege and the honor to sit under the preaching of your word and to read your word and understand what it is you're saying to us. We ask you to give us hearts that receive these words with joy. We ask it in your Son's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this special message. We hope you were blessed and encouraged by the preaching and teaching of God's Word. Now, may the Lord bless you, keep you, make His face to shine upon you, and give you peace. Amen.